Yeah, you fucking. We'll just make it quick. Hey, you're here with uh, Montage Through Cinema. I'm your host, Arian Bepur. I'm a director, writer at Columbia College Chicago, and today we have a great round of guests. We have Taylor Hentrop returning one last time. The last time. I'm back, guys. <laughs> Official. Hello, it's me. I'm of Taylor. course, the, the vice president of um, Colt Cinema Club and a director, writer also. Hey. We've got Zach Crossway. They can't uh, see you doing that. He, he did some gang signs. <laughs> yeah, I don't feel comfortable. Uh, Zach, what are you? What are you? Um, I'm a filmmaker person, as well as members of different types of clubs that show films at different levels. Well said, well said. Yeah. And we got a new guest here, Dylan Bernard. Hey, welcome. That was a baby bird. There we go. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm actually a gentleman. I don't want to present myself that way. Uh... Member, honorary member, two times Art House, member of VFS. I've been to the Colt Cinema Club like twice. Once. <laughs> Director, and writer. Yeah. <laughs> okay, and uh, sitting to my right is Nabil Awad, um, uh, president of the Art House and also a director, writer. Hey. Hey, I, so Nabil, I, I heard you have a, a, a tantalizing story. I do. It's a, pretty, it's a pretty great story. So uh, I'm working at the Gene Siskel, right? Mm -hmm. And I was talking to my boss today, and she was, we were talking about like subtitles and stuff, and uh, she was telling me that when she was younger in Iowa, she helped like set up a screening for Jacques Rivette's Out One, but they didn't have subtitles for it. So they got uh, one of her friends who spoke French and was quote-unquote, like, very obsessed about cinema, to do live subtitles for the entire film. That's, the film is... That's really crazy. The film's 14, 15 hours long. That's a really tough watch. She stayed in f there for 15 hours saying out loud what the subtitles should oh be. Oh, my God. That's insane. Isn't that insane for a 14-hour film? That really she is the just, craziest I gotta, shit I've ever... I, how do you I, even do subtitles for Out One? They're I know. like screaming over each other and stuff. Yeah. Like, there's like overlapping dialogue. Like, is she just like trying to do two voices at once? I don't and, like, know. Also, she has to work with stamina. It's like crazy. Like, I gotta I ask... Not, I gotta go back and ask my boss, like, what's you her name and email? Detail. Yeah, like, oh, <laughs> alive or something. Or did she, was she buried soon after? Yeah. <laughs> did you see her walk out covered in sweat and, like, dragging herself? Or is she, you never saw that? She was good? She yeah, was I mean, I should ask. I should have asked more. Now I regret that I don't, because like, I'm, I'm more and more realizing how crazy that is. <laughs> She's yeah. like, yeah, we know yeah, we set up. Did they give her water or food or something? I don't know. <laughs> like, right. No, that was part of it. What a, what a, what a feat of athleticism. I know, right? <laughs> so it's insane. Your boss is the woman that gave the intro for Zama, right? No. No? Okay, no. I'm like she's, way off. No, she's not. My boss... Oh. Okay, so one, she's of, another one of the girl. movies we've all seen recently is Zama by Lucretia Martel. And, uh, Lucretia. Lucretia. And uh, I think she's, she speaks French, for those. Spanish. Spanish. Spanish, sorry. Yeah. And, uh, and she's from Argentina. And her film is about... Does anyone want to take the minute? What her film is about? Uh, What's her, what, for like a synopsis, very, very quick one. A, a man is being transferred uh, back to Spain. No, no, no. no, no. Not no. Is that, is that not what's happening? It's, it's, no, uh, it's not what's happening. It's, it's a, to be. Yeah. The film is on Diego de Zama, and this is a character from a book that Lucretia Martel read. And so the book was written, I think, in the 1950s. Fictionalized or historical? Yeah, I believe it's a fictional it's novel, a fiction, yeah. right? And By Antonio Di Benedetto. Mm -hmm. So it is about a person in this era trying to maintain this the, the status of their position 
in a in a place that is practically lawless, right? So I'm not going to say it's like a western or something wild, like you know, like the cliche of talking about movies or something. But um, yeah, it's like law in, yeah. an, un, in a lawless place in that sense, and it's morality in an immoral place. So how much do you think we can talk about it without getting the spoilers? Let's just do a spoiler warning. Zero. Zero. Really? Okay. There's not really. There's not spoiling. It's not really a filmy. Yeah. Spo- I think the experience is really what's important yeah. about this. Yeah. Okay. Well, not, and we can well, just that, talk about her filmmaking, yeah. and then how that ties into why Zama, at least I think so, through mm-hmm. seeing her films, is the best film she's made, and why so, it is a masterwork. For her. So that's what Zach thinks. Let's let's go around and first start with Taylor. What do you think? Of I Zama? I agree actually, hundred percent. I thought it was unbelievable when I first mm-hmm. saw it. It also helped that uh, Lucretia Martel, <laughs> she was there in person yeah, presenting yeah. the film. And I got you to come. Yeah, he got yeah. he got me to come, and it was a great experience seeing her talk and listening to her experience. Making but it wasn't her talking. She can't speak English. Correctly. She can speak English, but she oh, prefers really? to speak through a translator. So there, at the screening that we went to, there would be times when she'd like wake up in the interview and speak in English, and I would like wake everyone up because she'd be like, "Okay," or something. <laughs> you know, "Okay," it's like. I'm pretty sure she speaks English very well, but I, oh, wow. I, yeah, I don't think she's like she reads in English, but I think she can like speak English, and I think she can understand yeah, she, English. I she didn't, can understand. I didn't actually. Her. I watched the, one of the interviews where she had the the translator. I didn't think that her translator was like artic- articulating it to such an extent. No, not at all. No. Well, if you see the the interview at the Golbankian, it's like really tough to watch. Honestly, yeah, it is. It yeah. really is. Like my, this is really funny, honestly, that I'm <laughs> describing this part of it, but. When I, I posted that on Facebook, because that's the type of stuff I post on Facebook, um, and I think my dad commented, like, what wise words from this woman, but I had a hard time following or something, and I think I just wrote as a comment, like, yeah, she talks very fast, and, like, she's also, and what I did end up talking to my dad about later was she's trying to, to pull together such vast amounts of information into, like, a very concise package, and with simple language, too, um, to, and that's so difficult, even for her to like keep up with it, because she is like, a, like a genius of speech, like as it as it is, right? Like on top of being a genius of, of filmmaking, and her her influence to make films is an oral tradition. It's the fact that she was told by her parents, by sorry, her like grandmother, right? Like stories of their family and stuff. Her film La Cienaga, The Swamp, that's like all within within the home, you know, and within I guess the moderate home or whatever. I wouldn't necessarily say it's like. A radical film. It feels very mm-hmm. universal in that sense. So it's like before, a before we get more into it, let's finish what everyone. The way I just want to speak on the Lesionaga a little bit before the way that she described it because I went to a master class with her a couple of days ago. The way she described master how, class. Yeah. Wow. What with Lucrucia? Yeah. Okay. Uh, the way she described uh, the how Lesionaga came about was in related to this oral tradition, which what she said was her inspiration was long phone calls with her mother where she would speak with her mother for like 90 plus minutes at a time and her mother would go and describe to her all these neighborhood stories like a soap opera and it would, al- and it would always be the stuff that, w- that would be like a tragedy, uh, someone being unfaithful, someone doing a crime, you know, these like neighborhood stories. And non-fiction and stories. Insulting. They're real stories. That, they're real stories. It's the mother gossiping. That's, that's central to her films. Yeah. Like reality well, or... Yeah, passing on the story or remembering the information. Yeah, you know, like in Zama, of course, remembering the name yeah. or anybody's yeah. name. Like, wow. so it's her mother. So it's her mother telling her all this stuff, and she would, she would say that she wouldn't really understand whether mom, why her mom was telling her all this stuff, and how all the stuff that she said made sense. And of course, as Zach said, you know, there's all this stuff with reality, and it's her mother relaying all this type of gossip and information and tragedy. And she said only after 
um, many days would she actually make sense of like the mosaic of stories that her mother sort of told her, um, which I thought was a fascinating comment. And another funny thing that she said was, now that there's like WhatsApp and like people text more, like her mother doesn't doesn't like speak like that anymore. So that like oral tradition oh, yeah. is being like that's crazy. Yeah, lost more and more because yeah. her, you know, because now there's like with this digital yeah, technology, yeah. this oral tradition I, that I'm is so central. Like, oh, God. Yeah, that is like so central well, to you, her. You like, gotta like make it to bullet points when you're texting people. You gotta. You, yeah. can't, well, exactly. you can't be like, yeah. hey, like let me get you involved. It's like well, it's just, like it's going into culture. It's really just relaying. Yeah. The, the character, character yeah. limits are a big thing too. Just yeah. with the limitation of information and like everyone wants succinct points. What do, really Z- what do you think of Zama? Zama? Yeah. Uh, well, I don't want to get too crazy into it because just, I feel like we're gonna really like yeah, dig in you naturally. Seen, you've seen Headless Woman, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I saw that a couple of years ago, okay. so I'm a little hazy on really my impression with that. But honestly, like this one, yeah, with just what you're saying, with like her influence with uh, uh, oral tradition and and how that influences the way she like depicts tone in the film especially it's really like incredible especially with the sound design Ooh, and oh yeah. i really want to get into very specifically what i talked to you about which the was the, tone? yeah because <laughs> you told that to her i did i, I like was the so crazy <laughs> goes like oh you like that because <laughs> yeah. it's like the first time i've seen it used in a way where it's like because yeah. i've always thought that was a fascinating phenomenon and for those who don't know the the shepherd's tone is like an audio illusion where you create multiple uh, ascending or descending tones that overlap each other, and it creates this illusion as if the uh, the note that you're hearing is constantly like either declining or ascending, and there's like no end to it basically. And uh, Dunkirk, you know, got a bunch of talk because it was really heavily. The sound design was like heavily using it, and it was like, oh, okay, yeah, that's kind of cool. And they had two clocks <laughs> going at the same time. Yeah, and. The, again, the shepherd's tone was like a big part of it. And, uh, you know, it was cool and all, you know, you build tension through that. But I think Zama used it in such a brilliant way because there's this constant movement and it's never going, like, it's never going to end, you know? It's like constantly in decline. And it's yeah. co- there's like a constant sense of movement, but it's not going anywhere, actually. Well, the, I think what's central to understanding her her um, thoughts on t- uh, on sound is and what makes her special in terms of the use of her sound design is that is that we need to like bring it back to her idea of time because she looks at sound through time and so she you know there's like a structural correlation there in terms of how she builds her films and what she said about it was that we can look at I'm sure you've heard about this in some interviews but that she thinks it's wrong to sort of have like one way to look at time progressing so she says the idea of a timeline and that things have like causal relations with each other. So we start here, and then we go here, and this leads to this, and this leads to this, these leads to this, is a valid way to look at time, but she says it's not the only way that we should look at time. And she likes to look at time through sound. Specifically, we, well, what does that mean? So what that means is she doesn't look at it in terms of this causes this, but she looks at this in terms of volume. So the example that she gave was if she's in a room, you know, the louder something like she won't it won't be like this from this to this it will be the louder something is you know like that's how she understands the space is by like the volume that something makes you know which is you know this might sound a little abstract but i think basically the the simplest way to put this is she's looking at time as like something that's absurd not something that makes sense you know and as 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 not something that's consequential she's trying to ground herself with sound 
established? Yeah, like for instance, understanding a room, if your eyes are closed based on how loud something is, you know, how loud I hear like you breathing, mm -hmm. you know, how loud I hear like a chair moving, like that's how... Yeah, there was a lot of... In, in the organic sound of yeah. the film, there was a lot like with... When, when he'd be at the beach and it's like you hear the water incredibly loud and then there's like... You hear these things that really like naturally wouldn't occur that way, but that's yeah. like it draws attention to sort well, of that idea. So, so let me let me draw you guys back for a second. I, I want to talk about my films of the film because yeah. I want to I want to yeah. bring in I want to bring in um, more of like how a, a regular person who isn't as as you know uh, into you know films, especially her films. I, this is my first Lucretia Martel film. Well, I had a U Chicago PhD student tell me that her films were impenetrable in the fucking, <laughs> in the fucking uh, master class. So I, I think most cinephiles, yeah, I, her films even, are even difficult cinephiles. for everybody. Okay, okay, yeah, cool. yeah. So, so I was watching the film. I missed the first um, 10 minutes, I think. Okay. Can you guys just tell me what happens? In the he was on the beach. And there was <laughs> so where do you start? Where did you start watching? He was film? on. He was on the beach, and there was a kid with, on the back of a um, a slave's back. Oh, oh, okay. Yeah, like, yeah, okay. Ten minutes. So, so yeah, you explain. There, there will, I'm gonna do it now. Actually, he, <laughs> so he essentially he's on a beach and he's. Uh, he's watching these 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 women, naked women. these naked women, oh, slathering themselves in mud. That? Yeah, and they notice him. They yeah. call him a voyeur. One okay. of them goes up and Talking chases about spiders. Him. It's it's like a sheep. Yeah, it's and a sheep. She she comes well, up, chases him. It's a bunch of women. And yeah. she finally grabs onto him when he's finally running away. Mm -hmm. he slaps her right across the face wow. twice. Well, and, and it's also. I, I read in an interview that I think Lucretia did with what uh, Chicago Reader, yeah, the Chicago Reader, just like two days ago or a couple days ago, very mm -hmm. recently, where she said, "Oh, poor Zama," and this is also something that I was playing up. <laughs> poor Zama, they called him a voyeur, but he was only listening or something like that. <laughs> that's, that's actually what it was. It's in the scene is a shot of him lying down and being like this, and you can't see this, but oh, so his, his head's kind of pointed. Right. away from them as, so, they're, as they're down below yeah. him undressed. Within the frame, you see the women in the background, and you see him in the foreground, and you see the water in the deeper background, and he's just listening, and he's not really looking. He kind of looks over, and he looks back and doesn't really look, and every time he kind of rustles, they, they, at least one or two of them, it might just only be one of them, and there's like a group, more four or five, let's say, um, that are slathering themselves in mud uh, naked. Uh, one of them just points up and goes, voyeur, and that gets a huge laugh from, like, the audience, like, immediately in the film. Like, that got a huge laugh both times I saw the film, like, a voyeur, and pointing, because she's pointing at him, but he's hiding behind the rocks. What she's really pointing at is the camera, like, literally, like, physically. She's pointing at the camera and saying, voyeur, so she's pointing at the audience and saying, voyeur, mm -hmm. five minutes into a movie. So mm -hmm. what happens after that? Well, yeah, he chases her down and slaps her around. They're I forget what the, they cut to after. And then, they, and then he's on the beach, and why is there people? Why is the Oriental coming on? Oh, well, we, remember there was the the scene where they're torturing the guy to get information out of him, and then the, on yeah, the, that's on right. The Kuna, also, yeah. yeah, no, yeah. they were. How do you pronounce the Kuna? The, the Luanga? Vicuña Porto? Vicuña? No, it's not, he's not related to what you're asking. This is something else. I'm just, I'm okay, I'm just, I'm, yeah, I want to get his name right. Vicuña. Vicuña. Vicuña Porto. Oh, yeah, that's right. The, so that's yeah. like one of the predominant, that's one of the, um, Ongoing. the meta names yeah. of the film. Yeah. <laughs> what's, what's, one the of the, what's his partner's name again, by the way? The one that who, um, who tries to write the book? or Yeah, no, 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 no. Like the one that kind of mocks him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Palio or something like that? Is that it? Okay. How much? Because it was very early on. He, he kind of leaves the film after that. He does. Right. He, does. he leaves after like it's half hard to avoid it. Yeah. 
Because yeah, the very beginning so, was like important for establishing, I think, so I, relationship. Mm. I had a hard time grasping it. I, and I was wondering if it was because I didn't see the beginning. Uh, we'll talk about we were never really here later on. But I did. Um, I, I had, um, for instance, one of my friends tell me who was, you know, I, I thought as good a, a viewer as me as, as for reading scenes and reading films. And he said he had a hard time understanding some parts of we were never really here. I don't know if you guys agree on that. No. No. Okay. <laughs> Who's your so, friend? Connor. So then um, when I was watching this film, I was like, man, I don't know if it's, I, I missed the first 10 minutes, and they set the tone really well in the first 10 minutes, but I really don't understand what the tone is. I was trying to grasp at, like, why this kid was saying these kind of, these prophecies, and then... Um, yeah, it's a very bizarre and scene. Only <laughs> after, like, only after a, maybe, like, 30 minutes, 40 minutes, I really thought, okay, I have a grasp of the, just the tone. Mm. Or like whatever right. type of tone she was. Well, and I could send this to you afterwards. But the, in the Chicago Reader interview, um, she does say it's it's perhaps a bit better to not know what's going on. And so for an audience member, that's like psychologically leading the person or the audience, and therefore the, the lead character through this period of like discovery. So that's how I would describe Zama to a large degree. Is it's very like frontal discovery in the sense of like sound and like what's in front like you know the camera and stuff um, what's very interesting is when i was watching the film i was actually also contemplating if this was a, a a good way to watch the film to miss the first 10 minutes not understand the tone i mean of course you yeah. want to watch it the way the director wants you to watch it of course the director wanted you to watch it 10 minutes into the film you start 10 minutes into the film but the fact that i knew there was a missing chunk made me so so uncomfortable so uncomfortable that i was like man this film even if it was Maybe I could have grasped it if I saw the first ten minutes. I, I, I'm lacking that, and it really made me feel like on the edge of my seat. Concentrated. And, um, I was I was really trying to like look at for something, and I, I was wondering why. I, I mean, we can start talking about it. So my my opinion of the film was it was it was okay. It it wasn't like super bad. It wasn't super good. There's there's aspects of it I liked. I love I love films where they kind of like have a, a, a haunting effect. Randomly, at one section of it, like, I was, are you talking about the llama? The, the llama walks up to the There's camera. A lot of section. The yeah. llama, the yeah. llama was hilarious. By the way, yeah. this film I, I think is funny. Also, in the my audience, people weren't really laughing that much. Only me and like two people mm -hmm. next to me were laughing. Yeah, our audience was laughing. I mean, the two that I was with both laughed. Like, mm -hmm. yeah, about the same. Um, but certainly, no, that's an interesting perspective because, like I'm saying, with finding yourself and stuff, mm -hmm. that's one of the reviews I've read about the film, or at least one of the the quotes that's on like. Whatever you've watched, watch the trailer or something. That's like this is a film that has arisen out of the mist or out of the mist of time or something. Or maybe I'm just making the review a bit better. <laughs> uh, that, uh, it's something like that. Like the film has arisen, and with talking about sound, it, it doesn't really feel. It doesn't really quite feel um, like you can pin it down. And we can talk further on that. But like I'm saying with uh, earlier about like kind of feeling, you know, like you don't know where you are. She further also says in the Chicago Reader interview that. She feels like we and people, like people in general, on like a general level, think they know too much. And like there's too much certainty, especially within cinema. Mm -hmm. So as far as how she frames the film, a lot of shots, and I, you know, I saw the film, I've already seen it twice in two days. And I certainly can tell you there were shots that I had no idea, like certain aspects of it that I didn't see the first time. Because how she loads the frame is not, is, it's kind of deceiving, right? And it's deceiving in the sense that, like the person pointing at the camera, um, is indicating in the sense that you're the voyeur and you're trying to make consequence out of what is distant action in a theater, not like what is actually in front of you or what's not actually like the narrative of your life, you know? So to do that with people in a landscape is 
necessarily a comment on reality, and that's a comment on how we're actually like seeing the world, how we're participating in the world. So the character Zama, for instance, he's always like coming in and out of rooms. He's always coming in and out of environments, and it does a lot of the film feel as though it's in between another stage. But as Dylan said earlier, it's like a decline, mm-hmm. and that's what's also I think very troubling about watching the film the first time is is getting getting a sense early on that this is going downward that this is that it isn't like he's moving forward it's not like the i mean maybe you can compare it to like a gary the wrath of god or something but not really right it's it's that there is only a descent from what what, what was a hope of the future and a hope of a fu- hope of the future in in a moral place right and in a place that's in between time this is not like a this region like the place where the film is set where the the action takes place is very early history of her country. This isn't like an established country. It isn't an established town, for all I know. I mean, it's very hard to piece together what civilization is actually there, aside from these shots within rooms and these shots of, like, three people outside. You don't see that many people in any of the shots, you know? Even though she'll say, I like getting a lot of people together in shots. She'll, like, say that in in interviews. It still is a place that's at the beginning so... I understand the confusion, and I think that is the great metaphor of the film, of this movement, and yeah. of our movement through time, and, like, it's not certain, it's not like, you know, here, like, nowadays, we have such a grounded society that you have plant, you have these these narratives that you can follow to, like, achieve your life, but if you're in the 1600s going to vaguely find gold, there's even less certainty about almost anything, Yeah, especially um, the physical environment. And if I could kind of go off of that, too, maybe this is a more, like, simplified version of kind of what you were getting at, just in the middle at least. I think that, yeah, the, the idea of, like, the audience being sort of the voyeur and sort of being a part of the character in a way, or maybe even separate from the character, right? really does parallel sort of this idea of, like, this expectation that's constantly being, like, let down. And I think that's, like, part of the film is that you're, you're constantly having some sort of expectation that the film's going to carry you a certain way, and it's, it's always going to just, you know, negate that and, like... For instance, if we're are we are we going sort of spoiler talk? Oh, we're yes. Yeah. Okay, because like when you get that time skip, for instance, it like totally just cuts out any sort of expectation you'd have and just completely. Cut Sorry, what did you say about the time jump when it when it goes right, 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 right? When he's like, oh, well, the major narrative leap. Yeah, 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 yeah. The narrative yeah. leap. Um, that's like a, a perfect example of sort of the film sort of define yeah. your expectation. Yeah, and you weren't here the second day, and I'm sure you might have heard this at some point. That the end of the film was shot first. And she shot the second half second. Wow. So he grew out, it took him a year to grow the beard and to look like bad, you know, and look skinny. And she just said it very funnily, you know, or, you know, witty, witty wits when we were there. <laughs> um, or, yeah, you were there for that. If yeah. you know how to plan, I, could, I assume that like, it looks like a real beard on him. I could tell. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So this is him. I'm like, okay. Well, they, must, this yeah. first. they must have made great prosthetics for his arms actually coming off. Oh God! So anyway, uh, she says um, she said yesterday, right? Was it only yesterday? Two days ago. Yeah, it was two two days ago. Oh God! Um, She said that uh, that it's just easier for an actor to gain weight, like almost like as a joke. You know, all the actors that have lost weight in the history of cinema in ten days or thirty days, they go, "Yeah, I'm going to lose a bunch of weight." And she just said, "Oh no, it'd just be easier if he grew out the beard. That take that would take a year." And then we'd shoot the end, and then we'd shoot the beginning. In the beginning, he would just be bigger because it's easier for an actor to gain weight. So it's <laughs> easier to I shoot the beginning, than which is crazy because the the amount of pragmatism, like like 
it's, it's like beyond pragmatism. It's like common sense, you know, to not even give the actor like their, I guess in the West, you know, uh, maybe that is the West, I don't know, I don't know. <laughs> I guess in, in the United States, we have this like bra bravado culture of the actors being like, oh, I lost a ton of weight and like getting the words. <laughs> And this actor is stunning in this film, yeah. but to make his life easier, he also doesn't have like that story now. He doesn't get to say like, "Oh yeah, I lost a bunch of weight," but because he, he really didn't. I mean, he gained weight. Like that's just so just bizarre. Like about how she put together the chronology and talking about like causality and stuff. This it's like kind of embarrassing to you, to the audience, to to know that you don't know that, to know with certainty you had no idea that the end of the film was shot first. That's like what we're talking about with like the illusion of time, with like the certainty of passing through history, um, and the certainty of what you're actually seeing, what you're actually hearing, and that's why her films are really difficult because she doesn't take it very, she doesn't take take our perceptions very seriously, and she takes the limitation of space that is the cinema as that, like you said, concentrated as a concentrated place where you can start funneling your your uncertainties, and you kind of want to say, oh, I understood the film, but. Some filmmakers just kind of hold something a little bit off to off frame, and then when someone moves, you see that something was off frame. You know, like there's this, there's this this knowledge of the filmmaker. She is doing this, right? Yeah, like okay. framing. You know, like there's like a shot like inside a house, and he's kind of like talking to someone, and you don't really see who it is, and they say, "Oh, they're dead" or something. Like, yeah, they're dead. yeah. And it's pitch black, and you can't see anybody, and you realize after the conversation, which is a, a basically. Describing to Zama, I guess secondhand, right, or firsthand, however you want to put it, from someone that is just telling him that his normal slave died, but they're not them. And mm -hmm. Zama thought that the person he's talking to in the dark, which I'm not sure if it was a man or a woman, I believe it's a woman, right? Yeah, it's a woman. Yeah. Um, the woman he's talking to into the dark, he thought that was a slave that it wasn't who had died. And so she tells him, no, she died. There's like a life full of sorrow or something, like really difficult language that has to do with, like, just a very poetic, like, yeah. kind of dark scene. That was during that haunting scene. Yeah, exactly. And then she leaves the frame, and when she walks by, there's even another person that wasn't, like, saying anything, like a child with a massive, like, afro or something, and you kind of look at them, you're like, how did they hide in the dark, in, in the frame? They were in the frame, and you can't see them, because she, like, designed the lighting that well, and within a couple of seconds, you're like, "Oh, there it is." And it's this thing about certainty, right? Yeah. Causal yeah. certainty. And and I think the sound design too, definitely. Like going back to that, yeah, is yeah. part of that sort of certainty versus uncertainty, especially when she's playing with uh, um, inorganic versus organic sound. Like when you get she talked a lot about that. Not, I mean, not just the shepherd's tone. I mean, she does a lot of like droning, sort of like. Uh, I want to I want to say like isotonic kind of tones that okay. are really like like what basically a frequency. It's like a, a frequency more or less that you're hearing that's like very synthetic. Yeah, yeah. And it, it yeah. creates like a certain are mental. Are the heart horrific sequences like um, when he's getting sick or when he gets his arms chopped off? Yeah, sequences. Yeah, sequences like that are when he's getting these really horrible bits of information or news, and I think that like totally plays into this sort of like. You know, it's something outside of almost the world, the natural world, quote unquote. Right. And yeah. it's it's this this thing that you can't grasp that's influencing. Yeah, it's like artificial. Here. It's like artificial crickets, right? Like, yeah. You can't quite well, to, to me, sorry. Yeah. Well, what's in, what's interesting about that in terms of her use of time is she doesn't think that like the the, the sound should reaffirm reaffirm what you see in the image. She says that the sound in itself should be like Coffee. its own 
No, like its own information, its own thing. That doesn't. So that it's not like about building a world, which is, I guess, what you'd probably learn in film school. But it's about giving you something that's further than the image. You know, that's further than the information that you're getting there. What was really interesting to me with the sound yeah. was how quickly it came in and how quickly it came out. Especially during that ch- arm chopping scene, it comes in like I don't know, like f- a few seconds at that shot, mm-hmm. right? And then it kind of goes in before he even cuts the arm off. I think I think also because he uh, Bakunya whispers something into Zama's Zama's uh, yeah. ear, yeah. And, the, and the music comes after that. And then I don't think it really I don't remember if it comes back. It might come back a little bit, but. Well, that's like the number one thing you don't do in movie maker. Or like when you're editing your old films, you don't you introduce music and you slowly fade it in, you slowly fade it out. You make sure it doesn't come off as like you make sure it doesn't come during a cut. You make like all these kind of things. Yeah. And I and I liked how it, it didn't feel definitely didn't feel amateurish, but I I liked how it did come in these significant moments. And it to me though, it felt more like a sound cue. It felt like connecting these horrific moments in his life where he felt so helpless, but. I think, of course, because we're talking about this director, you guys know more than, and I think there's more to it than that. It's not so much about her trying to connect ideas, which is what I'm taught about. Like, yeah. Well, like it's that. ironic we're talking about causa- uh, causality and like the chronology of narrative, because of all of her films, this is the film with the most causal relation, like the most occurrence, the most substance in a narrative sense. Like None of her other films seem to have any narrative... Yeah, well, they have plot, but like... Yeah, but the headless totally woman different. is about like just this uncertain place that you can yeah. be in with understanding your perceptions or something like that. And you know, there's no no one's arms get cut off in any other Lucretia Martel. <laughs> there's no on-screen violence in any of her films, and there still isn't really in Zama, aside from like the slaps, you know. But he, I mean, she cuts before he cuts, and there's something about that that's just so wild about the film um, and why I think it is even more troubling when you're talking about how it does it does seem like you know okay finally I have my bearing and like this is a sound cue and this is when he's like on the moment like there's you can really be in that moment because it's also kind of a very traditional movie moment and also narrative moment when you're like the hero's at the end of his life or potentially about to die and like is trying to figure out if he's going to die or not in the moment and so there's there's a very obvious way to go about that to like raise tension and stuff and again what is so off-putting in the end is even though that's it is causally related even though that seems very traditional it's like one and you know the most heavy moment of the guy's life the most distinct moment that his he could ever go through in his life that has to be very understood you know from Mm -hmm. like a cinematic collective memory standpoint like as far as a person seeing that moment and saying yeah, that sounds about right, you know, or I wasn't confused. Like, you're, you're, yeah. you're almost certain about that in the film. And again, like I'm saying about the, the other films and why this film is so troubling is that he loses his arms and then afterwards he's in the boat and someone goes, uh, do you want to live? And it's like, yeah. yeah, like a little boy says, do you want to live to what looks like the dead Zama, but he's still alive somehow. So there's no other Lucretia Martel film where a character is physically harmed or physically altered in a present sense, you know, like, and that's a whole, I mean, there are people smoking in her other films, and you hear people wheezing in, like, La Cienaga, and you can kind of think to yourself, um, oh, I don't think the kids want their mom smoking because she's going to have bad lungs as she gets older, but if that's the concern, it isn't, you don't see, like, the lungs getting damaged when she takes a hit of a cigarette, like, we don't, actually, when we hit a cigarette, but it's still happening, right, and it's like fucking... 
the axe or whatever. That's like a very, that, I say obvious. I mean, literal is another good term. I mean, physical, you know, you, you see what I'm getting at with like us realizing when our lives are different. And with her other films, there's not this physical, there's not like this obvious, because I don't even want to say obvious. It's just about like the suspicion and a life being different without something obvious happening, right? Yeah. Like, and I keep saying obvious. So there's that, there has to be a better word than that. It, um, I, I see what you're talking about, though. Yeah. Like, sort of this this sort of, I don't want to say in your face, but I know exactly what you mean. Like, it's almost on the nose, maybe a little bit. Yeah, because there's surprising. the questions they ask in the film is like almost directly aimed at you as much mm -hmm. as it is the character. Like, for instance, yeah, yeah. the you know, oh, do you want to live? You know, at the very end, and then there's the. Uh, What's the quote? He says something like, uh, I said no to your hopes. And that's yeah. just like, yeah. it's such a di direct, no me, I think yeah. direct yeah. is the word you're looking for. I did for. what no one did to me. It's just uh, so direct, no like a, a, a direct approach to what she's sort of like investigating, I guess, with her mm -hmm. film. So, yeah, I definitely see what you mean. And with that time length. Well, so. what's, what's, uh, what's interesting about that final scene and in terms of him saying like, uh, him giving Vicuña Porto like this gift of well, in his mind, a gift of not uh, giving him the hope mm -hmm. of uh, finding the coconut or not giving him the like hope removing of removing expectation. The coconut, the coconut yeah, is coconut. The, the, the... Jewels, uh, rocks with jewels in them. Which yeah. earlier in the film... Which, which, sure anything. Yeah, which earlier in the film, geo. yeah, someone like the king, not the king, but the, 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 the governor says those aren't worth well, anything. Well, I think Zama says that. Zama, Zama, Zama takes says that, that too. The king, yeah. the king is looking at it like it is worth a lot. He does say, oh, okay, and then he throws this, the coconut away. No, he says, I'm going to... He says, even if even if it's not worth anything, even if it's not worth anything... Okay, so yeah, he acknowledges... What is that he acknowledges the value in that scene? Because that's actually like a really key moment besides because i don't know what do you the, think, do you I, think i'm trying to remember exactly because it's it's been you know but i think it's something that before, has no value but actually looks like it has value in, and it has a right. to everybody for some right. reason even though it doesn't well, actually belong so numerical value maybe in like an early capitalistic yeah. sense it has no value but like if you know you lost your virginity to that uh that coconut. That's that's one way to take that. Well, it's, okay. just, it's just so Give tough. Me the coconuts. Give me the fuck I just have. I just have such a hard time. I just have such a hard time understanding Zama like at all as a character. And I think it makes perfect sense that she talks about causality and and what exactly that means, especially when you think about the character itself, because it doesn't really make any sense. Because he's like a corrector. He's like a the corregidor, right? So he has like some sort of Influence, but he's such a weak, like he's yeah. such a weak guy, you know. Mm -hmm. And you can, and you know, he has he has these women who he doesn't want to go to a brothel because you know it, it, it's implied he doesn't like black women. And then he yeah. um, he has all these women he's trying to like uh, you know be with sexually. And you know, there's other men like the bald guy in the beginning who's sleeping with the girl, and he like tries to kiss her, and who, he pretends he saves her. He, that that bald man's referred to. They might think it's Vicuña Puerto, but it's not. It's, it's not. No, I mean there's no. no. So it's just it's just really tough for me to even get a grasp on why this guy is where he is, or even what. And you know he has like sex with. Okay, so it says he doesn't want to go to a brothel, and then he wants to have sex with um one with the, that other woman. One of the tribal people he has a son with. Yes. Well, there and, you go. Well, that's what I was going to say. Is he has a son with and her? And it's a handicapped child too, which you hear it's like screaming every oh, single yeah. time yeah. that they're in the scene with them. And yeah. It's yeah. Really heart wrenching. So, every yeah. time they're in screen. So there's all this hope, and there's all this desire, and there's all this contradiction of desire, and all this contradiction of, 
I, you know, we were kind of talking about this the other day, but that he seems like even more of a slave than everybody yeah. else. He's like a slave of this bureaucracy. He's like a slave. He's like as much a slave of the Spanish government as these other slaves actually are. But you know, he's like even more alone. And I just, for me, it doesn't make any sense. Like it, it that perfectly connects to what she's saying in terms of the volume, like looking at time as volume, because yeah. it, these things aren't. You can't look at time as something that makes sense. And she said, you know, the the stage from. Teenagehood to adulthood is understanding the absurdity of time and the absurdity of, of life. So, and and that's really what it is. That it is absurd that he has these desires and these women are provoking him. And he's a voyeur. He's listening to these women and he doesn't want to go in the brothel even though he has his desire. Yeah. So, what what does that even say about his desire if he you know doesn't want to go to a brothel like and when he? Yeah, I think there's and, something to that. Like with the societal thing of of him having this sort of idea that like if he denies this sort of desire that it's going to move him somehow up in society or how he but, looks and this is it's, 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 like, it's still a contradiction because he still yeah. tries to kiss all these women you right know? right but it's you know there's like this this sort of shame of him like giving into his own desires that you can see in, yeah. in the, and i think that's that's a big thing is like yeah. we're talking about time is an yeah. absurd thing yeah. and i think yeah. in the same way society gets viewed that way as this sort of external Absolutely, thing that you yeah. can't you're a part of, and it's well, dictating your, your movement and your desire, yeah, yeah, and it's, yeah. it's working against you at the yeah. same time. Because, I mean, because that, yeah. you know, because all those things, right, that you're talking yeah. about, like, he doesn't know how to carry himself. He exactly. doesn't even know what he should do. And, these, and this woman even has a husband, but he's yeah. trying to kiss, you know, and he doesn't... But I think this sort of contradiction of desire, it goes... It goes, it's like, it starts like this, you can look at it, society, and then you can look at the desire, you can look at slaves, you can look at his son, and it keeps get, getting bigger and bigger and bigger in yeah. the film. And the biggest way to look at it and I, which I think why is the movie such a masterpiece is that it, you know it goes bigger to the point that it can, it's talking about his life and the yeah. desire to die or the desire to live. And what's shocking to me about the film is that he fucking goes to the his governor and he says, "Oh, can you fucking write this letter now, please? I like wrote this damning report that you wanted, you know, because he writes a damning report of his yeah. friend of the guy who's like this is the only copy of my book. He seems like a friend. He like writes this damning report to sort of go up and leave and maybe go to his wife." And what's absurd about that is that he he says, yeah, two years, then we'll write another, then he might reply. And and then there's like, I don't know how much time passes, and he's trying to look for Vicuña Porto, which is the ultimate, like, seeking, like, the ultimate seek out of glory, you know? Like, that's it. If he it's gets like me, looking if, for the coconuts. That's like, it's the parallel of, like... Him looking for the, the well, quote unquote coconut. It's, yeah, yeah. So yeah, it's like this. Yeah. yeah, he's an older man. Yeah. He's still trapped in like the original absolutely yeah. journey. Right. I know she said this yesterday or fucking two days ago. Um, and this is something I don't know if you guys have heard. And so it does have to do with this perspective, right? And like a historical perspective as well. Like us as the audience looking back at this period and hearing her because I went back to back days and heard her speak both times. Um, hearing her talk about how. Um, she constructed the film and what decisions she made about it being a period piece are so, like I said earlier about the fact that, you know, like he grew the beard and then that was first and then the second, you know, the very beginning of the movie was second in terms of the shooting, in terms of the two parts. Um, she talked about how, for instance, with the music, she said, oh, it's like music from like the 1930s or music from, I think the book was written and I think it was published in the 50s, but she said, okay, the music is from like the 30s and then you have this artificial sounding, artificial sounding insects and that's like very modern, right? Mm -hmm. And we're also looking back like hundreds of years. So if you're adapting a book from the 1950s and you put 30s music into that attempt at making the film about a period that was in the 1600s, that just goes to show that like, you don't really make like a period piece in a contemporary sense, especially in the sense of adapting a book, because you're you're going to something and then that's going somewhere else. So 
she's in, in these different levels of the film calling attention to the layers, to the, I guess, the, to the development of, of history within, like I'm saying, with sound, with, um, with period. And I, I'm trying to remember other stuff she, she talked about with that. Like, for instance, the language they speak in the film. Um, she said it was a made-up language, which is, you know, it's not a made-up language. It's that it's, um, it's like soap opera Spanish, and she altered it a little bit um, for the film, to suit the film. So if you're thinking to yourself, oh, this is how people spoke in this era, that's not true, you know? Like, really, it's not true, because you're not seeing that time. And it's very frustrating if you really, and someone at the, the Q&A we were at um, did say, oh, I was thinking about what his voice would have sounded like parallel to his actual voice. And I think the Spanish speakers in the audience could kind of figure out that it was a... Uh, that the dialect, that how they were speaking, was very, very understood. It's not a made-up language, but it's like this, what what soap opera actors are held to. So perhaps it's like whatever. Like it, I mean, I think in the United States, there's just too many different types of. But it's like newscaster speech, or maybe even, like overly formal. Or yeah, but it's like soap opera, right? Because yeah. I mean, I think United States soap opera culture is not what it is in like Argentina, for instance, um, or in Mexico, for that matter. Uh, so that language is very, and it is Spanish, Maybe but it's, it's like, like dramatized. Yeah, it's yeah. like formal, and that's what I was thinking during the film. Not that I knew it immediately. Not that I was thinking, oh, this is not Spanish, or this is a p particular type of Spanish. But it was after seeing a lot of her films. These actors are, and I don't like using terms like melodramatic or over the top or something. Like I have a very difficult time. Like we're talking about with sound, it's similar to that. It's like understanding if something was too loud or not loud enough. Like it's just well, through your memory. Like you can't really so. It seemed too. It didn't seem like too formal, but like in the very beginning of the film, I was con I, not confused, but I was. I I guess that was one of my first fascinations with it after seeing her other films that the characters were speaking in a manner that they don't in her other films, and they speak closer to how you speak in I guess in life and specifically in contemporary life. So it is, and this you can relate this to all kinds of films. Um, I like the trilogy of life as a film. I a grouping of films I think about when. Someone is saying, Pasolini, that this is a vision of the past, right? Zama is a vision of the past. It's an attempt to, it's an attempt to be the vi a vision of the past. So she has to, like, hack at that from these different levels of... I don't even want to say it's, like, subtext if it's... I guess the subtext of the film is, yeah, like, how, what dialect the people are speaking. But, again, it's not... And she did say she read historical documents, you know, and she said, like, oh, I invented the trap that the Native Americans used when they, like, trapped Zama and everybody. And she claimed stuff like that that doesn't really... I don't even know if I believe her, honestly. I, like, don't know if I believe that she is sincerely sure that aspects of what she made weren't truthful. And I think that's speaking to a lot of why great films about the past are really great films about the past. And it's like Albert Serra. We don't need to talk too much about him. But it's about the, the contemporary... It's about setting, making the past alive again. And that's the cinema. It's making the past alive. And ultimately, it is, a, it is an illusion, as, you know, the shepherd's tone. It is this massive collective thing, of, and it is a vision. And that's also troubling, because you'd like to think that if we have this very concentrated example of understanding our senses and the world and time, that we would be smarter than we are, that we would have a better ability, and also a quicker ability, to reason out our sound and our sight but we just don't. And that's also what I think she proves with the cinema, is that the cinema is not really confirming that you can hear and see. It's more that you can't really hear or see very well. Like, there's a very clear limitation to that. Okay. Well, that's um, really interesting. Let's let's go through final thoughts. Uh, yeah, the last, thing, the last thing I'd like to say about 
kind of all this is that in terms of all this stuff of desire or reality, it seems like the, the only thing that the only thing that, that's real what? No, I was just saying sorry because I just wanted to make oh. sure how much time. The only thing that, that the, the only thing that it's real is is because you know Matt Farrowholm he said oh it sounded really uh, he's a critic for Rodriever.com he said he's he's a friend of ours he was there at the screening and he said yeah this film sounded like weirdly hopeful and I don't re- I didn't even, I didn't really know what to make of that yeah I don't I, even know if I agree I, with when that when yeah. I saw that but but that kind of made me think like what does Matt see about that and then I was kind of hearing Bukwiti speak about what was real and all the stuff of desire or making the past past contemporary yeah, yeah, yeah. made me think of. Made me think of like what is actually going on? What is actually real? What is actually true? Well, the future is. Yeah. What is, is uh, what is actually <laughs> what is actually true in this guy's life? What is actually true in the world? What is actually true? And what I've sort of gathered in terms of it being, in terms of what's real or in terms of what's hopeful in the Matt Farrowholm sense is that ultimately there's like a desire to live, you know. And you can look at the film as a whole as like a man who's going towards decadence, you know, in terms of his uh, hopes of love and hopes of uh, having a future, like a child, right? They're, like, denied by, like, a bureaucratic, you know, societal, uh, personal, you know, the, the all these different things. Like, he gets into a fight. He, gets, he has all these things that sort of are stopping him from actually breathing the future that is, like, this child that he breeded, you know, biologically. He's, like, stopped from that by this bureaucracy. And there's all these things, but... And at the same time, and that's what something that's great that cinema does beautifully is that, or can do beautifully is that you know it's like just not not the decay of his like professional or or hope or hope of a family, but it's also the decay of his body. So he's heading towards the the decay of his body, which is his body is literally disintegrating, and not just him. That's what's so powerful about the film is that all these bodies are like completely like you know very sad and very and very yeah. disgusting you know and even the the woman he's trying to be with he's like all, all men want to be with me and I look at her and I'm like <laughs> yeah, all men covet my body yeah. And, I, yeah and I look at her and I'm like I don't know man there's something really <laughs> really not not that she's ugly but yeah. there's something that's we, strange so we, we didn't really even touch on the uh, you know the, the, the young prince or whatever that was on the he like yeah, okay, that's a really film. fucking crazy yeah, scene. Yeah, like, well, the, and the fact that he, like, you know, they go to find, like, his body later, right? Yeah, they're well, burying him. Yeah. The Oriental. Or they're not even burying him. They're like, what are they doing? Salting him? Yeah, yeah that's it. That's like a pivotal yeah, scene for so, the... Yeah. I don't even know how the Oriental fits in that well. The only thing I know is that his body is, like, the center. Yeah. So it's not... It's like a collective disintegration of the body. That's like, that's yeah. what Zama is. But... You know, and then it's not just the body disintegrating, it's other people hurting each other's bodies. Yeah. It's like people cutting arms, arms getting bigger. It's literally, it becomes kind of transcendent, surreal in a sense. But I think it's important to talk about the Vicuña Porto scene, the last scene in terms of that, because Vicuña Porto tells him, in an act of kindness, uh-huh. you have to put the, the, after we cut your arms, make sure to put the, the holes in the, the sand. In the sand. The that's the only, the sand, yeah. The, yeah, the stops in the sand. That's the only way you live is if you put the stops yeah. in the sand. And the next scene is he is alive in the fucking boat, you know? Yeah. So he's lost all hope. He's gone on this quest for Vicuña Porto as, <laughs> as the society is like crumbling, as society's evolving, as his life is, as he's losing hope. Yeah, it's very and slowly progressing <laughs> to where we are now. And you know? he puts his pores in immense pain. He's yeah. putting his pores in the sand. And you know, the film is hinting that he, there's a desire to live, mm-hmm. you know, and that's hope in terms of the I, whole. I do think it's in hope. terms of when yeah. all hope is lost. Well, and when there's Porto nothing, is also bright red after they've been covered yeah, in like forever. This, <laughs> all the other characters. There's a scene yeah. when the Native Americans, um, however, whatever term you want to use, I believe this is in Argentina. So, yeah. 
she talked about what dialects were spoken. I forgot what three different languages. Yeah. They're still indigenous people. Yeah, and she says that. Yeah. Well, she didn't say this, but in the scene where they're being covered in red by the the, the indigenous people, um, mm-hmm. it's so fascinating scene. when you follow that because yeah. what you realize is all the other characters lose the red. Like, they kind of get washed yeah. by the sand or they sweat it off. But Vicuña Porto yeah. is very bright red. Like, he's in the water and he's, he's still yeah, red. He's in like, the water he's still... Yeah, like, how does he possibly... Monstrous. No, I don't understand. I really don't understand, like... He's just passion. It's, this guy's such uh, a passionate person. I mean, they're all out in the sun, too. So, like, some of them are, are more used to it also. So maybe he's just very sunburned, like, in the sense that, like... Yeah. He's so young, you know, that he's so young and he's so recently in this area at this time in his life. He's just like sunburned. And the other characters have been here for longer. Oh, okay. People yeah. around him, right? Well, so they're more used to it. They're, so maybe that's the reason. Maybe that even supports that that isn't Vicuña Porto because maybe he's too young or maybe he's young enough to be it's, it's definitely, a he's, villain. He says well, the not. weird thing is he's Brazilian. Oh, Vicuña Porto, I don't know if you guys oh, know, okay. but he's speaking in Portuguese, which you can't tell because, the, you know, the subtitles don't, it's not like the handmaiden with the subtitles. The subtitles. It's a very but, slight difference. But he speaks, did you pick up on that, that Vicuña Porto speaks another language? I could kind of hear with, yeah. like, the voice. I couldn't really tell that it was, I couldn't exactly tell it was Portuguese, but his, his voice certainly isn't like anyone else's voice in yeah. the film. No. Like, it feels very distinct no. from, enough, like, a region that, like, you know, he's like his own unique, like his voice, yeah, it's a unique voice. So, I, I think this film's really interesting. It has like a lot of cool, to me, from not looking into it as much as these guys, I thought it it did make you contemplate a lot. I actually did think about like, why doesn't this guy just become a serial killer and just kill well, all the governors? And I thought, why don't I do that? And it's a really great way to like contemplate about your own life. Um, so we're gonna. The one more thing I'd like to say about uh, <laughs> yeah. you, you have, you have more actually things, thirty seconds. Really? Oh, well, I'm not gonna try to do it. Okay, seconds. so right. we're gonna move on. To I can talk were, a lot about. You that. were never really here in the next podcast. Same group. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Great job, guys.